Hi, everyone. Welcome to our podcast, We Measure the World, produced by scientists for scientists. And labeling, I mean, man, that is, that's a big one. I've seen that go wrong on people an awful lot. I know one friend of mine had taken a whole load of water samples. He comes back to the lab. It was a long day. He had to travel quite a distance and he had labeled the lids instead of the tubes and when he took the lids off he couldn't remember which lid went with which tube and he goes what should i do and i think i think you better go back and take new samples oh no it's so frustrating but we've all done that we've all mislabeled samples or failed to remember what our sampling code was even though it seemed perfectly logical to us at the time so yeah that's another really really common mistake and you know I I make these mistakes too that's the other thing in fieldwork ready I'm not saying that I'm above these mistakes what I'm probably saying is I've made these mistakes you don't have to (laughs) that's a small taste of what we have in store for you today We Measure the World explores interesting environmental research trends, solutions to research issues, and tools to better understand the entire soil-plant-atmosphere continuum. Stay current on applied environmental research, measurement methods, and more. Thanks for joining us. Today's guest is Dr. Sarah Vero, who will be discussing all things field research as well as her new book, Fieldwork Ready. Dr. Vero is a lecturer in agricultural science at the Waterford Institute of Technology in Ireland. Her research focuses mainly on soil science and water quality. After her PhD, Sarah did her postdoc at Kansas State University. She then returned to Ireland as a member of the catchment science teams in both the Republic and Northern Ireland. Sarah, I just want to thank you for joining us on our podcast today and was hoping you could give us a brief introduction of your book and then what inspired you to write it. Hi, Holly. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate uh, being here today. Um, well, field research is really, it's kind of the backbone or it's the spine of, of agricultural and environmental science. And we really need it in order to ground our conclusions and our observations in reality. So the, the advice we're giving to farmers, to policymakers and to the information we give to the general public is realistic and it actually reflects what we see in the actual outdoor environment. And as modeling becomes more and more powerful and that we rely on it more and more, uh, sometimes field research can kind of get a little bit forgotten, I think. Uh, But in order to make realistic and effective models and in order to make devise practices and technologies that actually work for the people with their boots on the ground in the field, we need to do field research. I came up through, uh, you know, third level education. I did my undergraduate, my master's and my PhD. And I found that field research had a huge learning curve when I got to that uh, master's and PhD level. I mean, there was always someone available to teach me the practical techniques, you know, how to use certain pieces of equipment, how to do things in the laboratory. But the soft skills of logistics and planning and and really asking the reason why we do field research that was sometimes a little bit lacking and there was an awful lot for me to learn on the go. So I kind of thought, wouldn't it be great if there was a book or some sort of a resource there that would introduce new researchers, whether they be students or whether they be postgrads, into what's involved in field research to kind of set them up with those primary skills and to overcome the fear factor or the intimidation factor that surrounds research. I know from my own experience, 
being afraid of, you know, the challenges that are involved or nervous that they might do something wrong is one of the things that holds a lot of students back from getting into the field. And there's really no reason for that. There's nothing that can't be overcome with good planning and good execution. So that's really what I hope to achieve with this book is kind of to make an introductory guide, a sort of a friend in the field to help people get started. It's not going to answer all of the questions, but it'll get you into the field so that you can start answering them yourself. That's great. I think that's so true. Fieldwork has such a kind of a mental component to it. You know, if you've never done it before, there's sort of this mental block. Can you talk about that? Because I know you've said that you've experienced that with your students before. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, let's say you take a new student, right? Whether they be an undergraduate or a PhD student or a master's student or even just someone who's new to research. And they might be very, very educated and very, very knowledgeable based on their uh, classroom or their lectures or their laboratories. But the classroom, the lecture hall and the laboratory are all controlled environments in which you kind of know what's going to happen next and you know where everything is and, you know, there's very clear indications of what's going to happen next. And now you're saying, well, here's a question, a really challenging question, your PhD hypothesis that nobody in the world knows the answer to. And out there is the real environment, whether it's a, a prairie or a field or a river or the Antarctic. And we want you to go out there and to figure out logistically how to test your hypothesis. I mean, that's a big thing to ask someone and they don't know so much, not from any fault of their own, but just because they're new. So uh, what I wanted to do was to take away that fear factor, to break down the steps that are involved in field research from translating your hypothesis into a field question. How can you test this? And then developing the strategies and how do you go about actually executing that test? Um, so I really thought... It, if you have a map, things aren't so frightening. And I thought that this would provide people with that map. So that's a good point. So a lot of times with lab procedures, right, you have a protocol that's written out. And so yeah. it's very comforting and very easy that you feel if you just follow those steps that you'll get the results that are reliable. But yeah, absolutely. I guess with field work, that's very much not the case all of the time, right? Yeah, because I mean... The, the real environment, the outdoor environment, it's by its nature, it's heterogeneous and it's variable throughout time. So just because you go and visit a site on day one and you do your preliminary spec and you're like, everything looks great here, doesn't mean that that site is going to be as reliable, as accessible, as controllable throughout the entire year or multiple years that you're analysing. So really to be a field researcher, you have to be adaptable and you can't really be liable to panic. You have to stay calm and you have to have a plan in advance rather than try and deal with things on the fly as they come up. Because every field campaign that I have ever come across, both my own and those people who I work with and my colleagues and peers, they all have, you know, the unexpected, whether it's, oh my goodness, some cattle got loose and trampled on my plots or yeah, there was a once in a hundred year storm and a flash flood and it swept away my monitoring station or just, you know, the results aren't coming in the way I expected, or it's a little more challenging to dig this soil pit. And you just have to be ready for the unexpected. There's always something. And the thing is not to panic when the unexpected happens. Right. And the other thing about being afraid to get into the field, students and early career researchers are often worried that they will do the wrong thing, you know, that they will 
spend money on equipment that's not ideal or that they will choose a site that's not perfect. And they get this sort of paralysis by analysis, you know, where they're like, well, I have to answer absolutely every question before I go into the field. And that's actually not the case. If you had every question answered or if you waited until every single question or uncertainty was answered, you would never get out there. That's the truth. So the thing is, is to set people up to such a degree that they're able to get out there and start narrowing things down, answer the first question, which will allow you to answer the second question and so on and so forth. And if you break things down sequentially, it's an awful lot less frightening. Do you think there is such a thing as the perfect field site? No, (laughs) no, I absolutely don't. Because, uh, you know, there's so many variables in the environment. The other challenge with environmental or agricultural science is that you're trying to draw conclusions from a limited number of sites, even in the largest studies, that are applicable much more broadly. That's the whole point of research. You know, not everything can be tested on site. You need to draw your conclusions out uh, to their wider implications. So there's always going to be drawbacks from that perspective. And even if you have a site that you can control very well, people tend to return to the same sites year upon year. And then you have to question whether that site is compromised by previous experiments. So no, there's no perfect site. Uh, And unlike a laboratory, you're never starting from a completely blank, clean slate environment. And that's just something that we have to... uh, compensate for as much as we can and quantify. If you can quantify the antecedent characteristics or quantify the sort of potentially confounding characteristics, you can still draw very, very useful conclusions. Right. So accepting that the site's never going to be exactly how you want it to be, but as long as you can account for the things that might be affecting your data, that's the important part. Absolutely. So what was your first introduction to field work? And I guess, how did you get into becoming a scientist? Well, you know, I didn't come from an agricultural background at all. But even when I was a kid, I was fascinated by farming, fascinated by agriculture, uh, really into the outdoors. So for me, agriculture was always the route I was going to go in some way or another. And I always had a huge interest in science and in asking questions. So for me, there was never any big mystery about what I was going to do after school. It was always going to be agricultural science, uh, which I'm sure confused a lot of my schoolmates in Dublin, which is Ireland's capital city. But for me, it was a a done deal when I was very, very young. Um, When it came to research, so I was finishing up my undergrad, which was animal and crop production, which was a very, very broad agricultural degree. And I did want to do a master's, but I did not want to sit in a classroom for one minute longer. I had had enough of classroom and we did an awful lot of time out actually on farms, you know, working in, I did a pig farm, dairy farm, beef, sheep, you name it. Uh, So I'd already kind of been out in the wild, so to speak. And the idea of going back to the classroom now just didn't do it for me. So there was a master of science uh, by research that became available, which had a little bit of funding attached to it. And they wanted somebody to look at soil compaction. It was a very, very simple, straightforward plot study. And it would involve me going to Chagask, which is the Agri-Food and Development Authority here in Ireland, at their Wexford site in the southeast of the country. And 
I couldn't have got on board that quicker. I thought it was so exciting. I essentially had a plot trial where I was um, adjusting the soil to different moisture contents and then driving over it with a tractor. It was a Landini Vision 105 with a 2,000 gallon slurry tanker. I can remember all the details now. Uh, I probably remember the tire pressure if you gave me a few minutes. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I measured simply the change in bulk density, the change in shear strength, and the yield loss over time from compaction. And I spent most of the summer either taking soil cores or driving around on a lawnmower. I had a great time. <laughs> I just loved it. And I loved the environment in the research centre, uh, the fun with the other students. I loved talking to the researchers. I thought they were all so interesting. And uh, yeah, that was my first experience. It was really, uh, I couldn't have had a better introduction to field research, actually. And based on my master's, it was very clear to me that field-based research not only was really, really important and translatable. I mean, it, that project, I felt it, it uh, performed very well in that it was able to yield information that was useful to policymakers and to other researchers, but it also was so practical. Like it, I can talk compaction with a farmer and because it was based on a field trial, not some model that's rather incomprehensible, I was able to quantify the results. This is what you will see in the field. These are the kilos of grass or the tons of grass per acre that you will either gain or lose depending on your practices. So I really like that aspect to it. Wow, that's really interesting. And so then at that point you were hooked and you knew you were going to go on to the PhD and the postdoc and the whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. I, I had arranged a PhD. My master's was halfway through and what happened to my PhD actually was there was another student who dropped out of the PhD program and his PhD was kind of floating in the wind, so to speak. So I stepped up and I said, if you're interested and if you can hold on a couple of months for me to finish up my master's thesis, I'd love to do that piece of work. Uh, so I was able to move straight over from one to the other, which was great. Yeah, that really suited me. Right. So was that also in soil compaction or were you looking at some different questions? No, not in compaction, but it was in soil physics. So what I was looking at was nitrate transport, uh, nitrate leaching, that is, through the unsaturated zone to groundwater. So it had quite a large field component in terms of installing soil monitoring arrays and doing tracer tests. And then also soil sampling, which I then analyzed for the soil water characteristic curve. So it was kind of backed up, the field component was backed up by a strong laboratory curve and some method development, which was very challenging. Uh, I'd say method development was probably the thing I found uh, most challenging, but also very rewarding because you're you're bringing in a new method that wasn't there before, developing a previous method. But certainly, I the part that I loved was the field component. What is your favorite thing about field research? What gets you so excited about doing it? Oh, that's a good question. I really like the outdoors. I like that you're traveling around, you're seeing other people, you're seeing things happen in the real environment. In other words, it's not just notional there's not 20 steps between what i'm observing and what i'm the conclusion i'm trying to grow or tr trying to develop you can see it in the field if your methods of analysis are good enough whether that's sensors whether that's physical methods whether that's measuring yields or whatever else. so it's it's quite um it's very tangible and it's also exciting because things are happening uh in real time 
you know, so I, I really like that aspect to it. And I like that there's a team aspect to it too. You very rarely are entirely alone on field work. You're usually working to a greater or lesser degree with other people. And that's really, really rewarding. There's kind of like a camaraderie aspect where even if you're doing something that's not fun, because I remember with my master's, we would be out in the fields in the middle of the summer in Texas pollinating wow. corn by hand. And so that's, you know, not the most fun task to do, but I think the fact that you're out there with other people who are kind of suffering alongside you, right? That's kind of yeah. a bonding experience for everyone. Yeah, 100%. And you feel really satisfied after when you come home at the end of the day, you feel like you did work. I completely agree. Like I've worked for days and days at a piece of statistics or I've been, you know, pulling my hair out o over a paper that I'm trying to write and you can get to the end of the day or the end of the week and be like, wow, I, I really don't feel I made any progress. But if you got your round of sampling done or if you installed a sensor or whatever else in the field, it's it's a win. Every day, I think, has a real win in it. And I really agree with what you're saying about kind of suffering together. Like even when I run into people now who I did field work with five, six years ago, oh, my gosh, do you remember that day we were in the West Coast and, you know, the sun was beating down or we were you know, up to our knees in, in a flooded field and you can laugh about it after, you know, it's, it's uh, really friendship building and character building, I think. Right. Sort of a forced team bonding exercise in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess then on the flip side of the things you like about field research, what are some of the most challenging things or, you know, can you think back to an experience where it was just a hard day in the field and you kind of were discouraged? Yeah, I mean, the, the fact that it's unexpected or that there's uncontrollable elements is probably the most challenging part of it. And, you know, it can be very disheartening when you think you have all of your bases covered, you know exactly how you're going to install this equipment or run this sampling. And then you can have, you know, weather that's out of your control or simply miserable to work in, or you can have equipment malfunction or you forget something or, I mean... You name it, what can go wrong will go wrong. There's some great threads on Twitter where I think it's hashtag fieldwork fails. And uh, not that I want to say that fieldwork is, is, is prone to failures, but it's certainly prone to accidents, errors and the unexpected. Well, just like lab work is too, right? Totally, totally. It's just sometimes on a different scale that the mistake is happening. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so, you know, things can go wrong. They will go wrong and that can be really disheartening. But what I find is the more you go on through fieldwork and the more you speak to other researchers, everybody's been through it. So no one's looking at you thinking, oh, what a fool. They really messed that up. They're thinking, oh, my gosh, I remember what went wrong when I was doing this three years ago. Or, well, you think that was bad. Wait till you hear what happened to me. You know, so uh, what I would say is not to try not to be too discouraged by the things that go wrong. And then the other challenge is sometimes it's just hard. Sometimes you have to walk 10 or 15 miles and it's in Kansas in the middle of summer and you're using a metal detector to find sediment traps and you're thinking, I wish I was inside with a cold drink and this is just too hard. Or, you know, sometimes you've done weeks and weeks of intensive water sampling during the recharge period and you're just tired and you're just cranky and so is your teammate and you're arguing over something silly. But at the end of the day, every day of fieldwork is taking you one step close. There are no backward steps in fieldwork. You are only ever going forward. Every small win that you have, whether it's taking a sample 
or taking a making an observation that's taking you one step closer to your goal so i'd say don't let the small difficult days get you down you are on your way you're moving forward even if it's slow that's a good point and like we talked about that sense of tangible accomplishment that's happening you know whether it's you sometimes when you're writing you could rewrite the same paragraph like three times in the same way and you feel like what did I get done yeah absolutely whereas if you're doing let's say you're doing a I don't know, a plot trial, right? And you take your yield data in the middle of summer and it was a really tough and it's a really long day and you come home and you're cranky and you're tired. You need to think to yourself, well, actually, I never need to take that sample again. That sampling point, I've got it in the bag. Those samples are in the oven. I've recorded my data. And even though it was hard, you don't have to repeat that. Whereas just as you say, you might have to write that paragraph again and you probably will have to run the stats one more time to be sure. It's not like that with fieldwork. When it's done, it's done. Right. I think that's an important point too, though, of being cognizant of that when you're in the field, even though you might want to rush because you're tired and you want to be done, that this is your time to take that data. And if you cut corners now, you're not going to be able to redo it or undo that. Yeah, completely. So I I guess kind of on that note, making mistakes, are there common mistakes that you feel like everybody makes that maybe we don't all need to be making them and that we can kind of learn from each other? Yeah, I think probably one of the most common mistakes is in time management. People usually under budget when it comes to time. I mean, people are normally quite generous in their financial budgets, but for some reason, we don't do the same thing when it comes to time management. And I'm not saying this is other people. This is me too. It's it's really quite challenging. Uh, And as a result of leaving not enough time, either on a daily basis, in other words, you think you'll get more done in a single day of fieldwork than you will, or over the course of a season in that you think you'll get more rounds of sampling or that you'll get more installations done. So on a macro and a micro scale, people just underestimate how slow things really are. So I think that's probably one of the most common mistakes that I have observed. And really, you know, a a lack of sufficient time in my experience, has led to only two possible outcomes. One of which is that the researcher suffers in that you're under uh, physical and mental pressure to meet your targets within the brief time that you've allotted. Or number two, that the data suffers in that you take the measurements within the time that you've scheduled, but maybe they're not as representative or as of high quality as they would have been if you allowed yourself more time. So that's probably the most common one that I have experienced. And then just sort of general underpreparedness. People are will often prioritize preparing the key equipment. So they'll have the augers that they need and they'll have, you know, they'll arrange for whatever technician they need to be on the site, the kind of the macro issues. But then they'll forget the little things like, did you bring a suitable pair of spare clothes? Do you have a multi-tool? Have you got spare sampling bags? Like those little bits are the difference between fieldwork being successful but challenging and fieldwork running smoothly, you know. So I think paying attention to the your general preparedness uh, is really, really important. Yeah, that's a good point. So are those two kind of common 
issues that people need to account for, something you discuss in your book to help people sort of how do you better estimate time if you're not well experienced in the field to know kind of how to adjust those things? And how is there sort of like a checklist for people of like things you should always have on you when you go to the field that you might not think about off the top of your head? Yeah, absolutely. So in my book, Fieldwork Ready, I kind of cover a lot of the soft skills of field research. So your planning, your preparedness, your logistics, all of those aspects that should give you that general preparedness in order for you to excel in your specific science, whether that's agronomy or, you know, uh, fish science or, uh, you know, ecology, whatever specific area of expertise you have. And I would kind of break these things down into the three T's. I think you need to think about your team, your tools, and your time. When it comes to time, I kind of prioritize that because I see that's where people most frequently go the most wrong. I kind of have an equation for it. So I think you need to think about your travel time, your setup time, the time it takes to take your measurements, the time you need to rest. And this is probably the most overlooked just because you have... I don't know, a 10, 12 hour day doesn't mean you can work for 10 or 12 hours straight, particularly if you have driving as well as that. Plus, you need X, you need spare time for the unexpected, because as we said earlier, there's always the unexpected. And even if you allocate time, sufficient time for the other aspects uh, of your field work, some small un unexpected thing, and it could be as minor as you know, a the farmer comes by and he wants to talk to you for 40 minutes and that's absolutely fine and it's a good thing to do, but that can throw the rest of your time budget unless you've allocated sufficient time to accommodate these unexpected things. Or maybe there's just heavy traffic and it takes you longer to get to the field site. So that will kind of be my equation for time management. And this goes, you it's a buffer of time that allows you more flexibility on the day or across the season. When it comes to tools, I'm a big fan of making lists and I think everyone should have a list all the time of the tools that they need to bring and also the equipment they need to bring for themselves. So your clothes, your, you know, your food, things like that. Um, but I always have a grab bag as well. And it doesn't really matter whether I'm doing water sampling or soil sampling or working on a plot trial. I will always have certain things with me no matter what. So the first up on the, for those would be a multi-tool. And I'd say get a really, really good multi-tool. It will stand to you. You'll have it for years. Uh, the one I like best is the Leatherman Surge model because it's got a lot of kind of electrical um, electrical devices on it or, or, or tools that to work with electrical devices because I work with soil sensors often. That's very, very helpful. Uh, I like to go for a heavy-duty multi-tool because they... They last and they give you a bit of strength in the field. The last thing you want is the pliers you're depending on to snap. I've known that to happen too. Um, I'd say you should always have a flashlight. It can keep you safe. It keeps it gives you an extra few hours of sampling or in moving around the area if you need it. I'd say, and this is one that all field researchers I've ever come across will all swear by these zip ties. They are the most useful thing. You can use them to rig up equipment, to seal sample bags, you know, you name it. You can do it with zip ties. They will keep you safe in a pinch. Duct tape, another one, probably pretty invaluable. And then sample containers. You should always have a variety of bags, boxes. You should never miss out on the opportunity to take a sample because you didn't have anything to put it in. I mean, that's that would be really, really frustrating. And 
I, I've heard this phrase and I heard it attributed to the Marines, but I wouldn't want to swear by that. I, I don't have a citation for that. But it goes that two is one and one is none. In other words, you should always have spares and a spare for your spare. Um, so they'd kind of be my, my rules of thumb when it comes to uh, tools. Right. If you have 50 samples to take, you better go out with way more than 50 bags yeah, in case you absolutely. break one or mislabel it or... Absolutely. And labeling, I mean, man, that is, that's a big one. I've seen that go wrong on people an awful lot. I know one friend of mine had taken a whole load of water samples. He comes back to the lab. It was a long day. He had to travel quite a distance and he had labeled the lids instead of the tubes. And when he took the lids off, he couldn't remember which lid (gasps) went with which tube. And he goes, what should I do? And I think, I think you better go back and take new samples. <laughs> oh, no. It's so frustrating, but we've all done that. We've all mislabeled samples or failed to remember what our sampling code was, even though it seemed perfectly logical to us at the time. So, yeah, that's another really, really common mistake. And, you know, I, I make these mistakes too. That's the other thing in Fieldwork Ready. I'm not saying that I'm above these mistakes. What I'm probably saying is I've made these mistakes. You don't have to. <laughs> Right. Do you have any tips specifically for women in STEM who might just be getting into field work and are, you know, maybe have that extra level of intimidation about getting into this kind of field? Yeah, sure. I mean, as you say, the, there's an intimidation factor there for just about everyone. But maybe it could be a little bit more pronounced for women in some instances. First of all, I would say you're not the first There have been women in soil science and environmental science for absolute decades. Maxine Levin, who's with the Soil Science Society of America, published an article not too long ago, which had documented uh, significant women in soil science. And it went back over 100 years. So don't think that you're the first person to do this or that it's the first challenge out there or the first person to encounter this challenge. And that shouldn't that should give you a lot of encouragement because where someone else has done it before, that means you can probably do it, too. And they were probably nervous as well. And I would also say that that probably applies to new researchers uh, across the board. You know, there's been great women researchers out there. So if you need some encouragement to get over that initial fear factor, just look at the great women we have in the Tri-Societies of America in the fields of agronomy, crops and soil science. And any one of those you can reach out to and they'll give you a little bit of encouragement or a bit of advice about their specific fields if if it's your field as well. So that long legacy should really reduce the intimidation factor to begin with. And then beyond that, it's a matter of applying the same principles that will make anybody successful. So planning, plan your accommodation in advance, plan your clothing, plan how you're going to deal with the bathroom issue. By planning ahead, you can really avoid a lot of discomfort and worry when it gets to the field. And that allows you to just focus on the reason you're there, which is to collect good quality data. You're just as capable as anyone else in that respect. Don't let the other issues uh, limit you uh, in that regard. Beyond that, be safety conscious, but this is the same for anyone in any environment. You should be aware of your environment from a safety perspective. And if a scenario or an individual seems unsafe or makes you uncomfortable, 
take action and deal with that, whether that's speaking to your supervisor or removing yourself from the scenario. Um, this goes a lot if you're working alone, whether you're a male or female as well. If you think mm, this environment actually seems unsafe for whatever reason, just get out of there. Remember, it's only fieldwork. You, the researcher, the individual and the person are more important than the data in the fields. The data we can get that some other day if we need to look after yourself, number one. And I'd say that goes across the board for any safety issue. Yeah, I want my students to come back with the data. But more than anything is I want my student to come back. They're more important than any data. And then the final thing I would say for women in the field is just work to your own ability and collaborate. You don't have to show off or you don't have to, you know, if you can't do something, that's absolutely fine. But don't think that you can't do something. Give it a go. And remember, you're working as part of a team. So when I'm working with my colleagues, we're all just field researchers in the field together. And if I need help with something or they need help with something, we just help each other out. I think the team aspect is really important. And I also wanted to ask, you know, if you were kind of assembling your dream team for the field, what kinds of other researchers do you want to have out there with you? Yeah, absolutely. So when I'm thinking of who I need on my team, I break it down into two broad elements. Number one, I need labor. And number two, I need skills. So number one, I need enough hands, physical hands, to do the job in question. And number two, I may need people with specific skills. Now, if I have enough people, maybe I can teach them the skills or maybe I need to bring in skills that I myself don't have. So they're the two things I, I think of. So, for example, a few years ago, I was doing uh, river surveys. Or I, was, I was leading a team doing river surveys, rather, where we had to take a very, very large number of samples longitudinally across river networks. We had to do this in four different catchments and each survey had to be done in really we were aiming for under four hours because we wanted to capture a specific flow period. There was no way, no matter how motivated and no matter how fast I walked, that I was going to manage to cover that river network. So I simply needed enough willing people to cover individual areas and then to liaise and to bring our samples together at the end. So you've got to make sure you've got enough people. Underestimating your number of people that you require is a lot like underestimating your time. You or the data are going to suffer. Um and either way is not a good conclusion. Um, on the other hand, in terms of skills, sometimes you need people who have particular expertise and you might want to train someone up or become trained yourself. Or sometimes it's just more efficient to bring in an external contractor or a collaborator to lend those specific skills. And that's that all comes down to kind of your planning process in advance. You need to really map out, well, is this something we're going to do ourselves or is this something that we need to get a bit of help on? But in terms of characteristics for who I would want with me on a day-to-day -day basis, I really go for enthusiasm more than anything. I would rather a willing helper uh, who's maybe a little bit inexperienced, but willing to learn and willing to put their back into it and make some effort than someone who is maybe very, very knowledgeable and very skilled, but doesn't have their heart in it or might just not be very fun to be around. If you have a choice, you should choose people who you can work well with, much like in any other working environment. Because remember, you're out there together. You have only really each other or your small team for company and you're not going to need to rely on them. So you need to know that that person is 
going to put their best efforts both into the sampling and to look out for you and you, you can look out for each other. I, I think I've been very blessed really in the teams that I have had. Um, I'm thinking now, I can't think of anyone who I would say, no, I, I wish I didn't have them on my team. I've, I've really had some fantastic teammates. Yeah, I one of my dearest friends, I met her when we, um, for the first time when we took a trip to Westlaco, which is about eight miles from the border of Mexico. It's like a seven hour drive to get there from College Station. And I mean, it's quite an adventure just driving down um, because I'd never been to that part of the country before. I bet. And when I got there, I realized that I had not put my rubber boots from <laughs> the office into the field truck. I'd taken them out of my car into the office, but oh, they no. did not make it back to the truck. <laughs> and the soil down there is very muddy, um, like, you know, kind of cakes on. And yeah. so I had brought some just converse that I, you know, didn't really care to have them dirty. But that was that was a rough time. And for me to be a new grad student with these undergrads who were training me <laughs> for them to see me show up without boots, I was like, OK, well, this is how we're doing it. So, yeah, well, I guess it's uh, kind of Murphy's Law. Anything that can go wrong probably will go wrong. <laughs> Right. And so not only did I not have my boots, but of course the soil was Oh, muddy. naturally. And you know, that's, that's field work. <laughs> so that was fun looking back, but at the time it was very intimidating because it was, you know, I was new to field work. I, you're away from home. You're in yeah. an unfamiliar place. In some ways it, it was kind of felt a little bit dangerous because you're very close to the border of Mexico. And so there's all these different elements, you know, I'm with, I'm with, a couple of undergrads, so I feel like sort of responsible for them. But then at the same time, they're much more experienced than me in the program. And so they're teaching me, um, you know, how to how to care for this nursery and do pollinations. And so I was kind of thrust in. And I, I think I was very grateful that they were such great people to be around. And one of them, um, my friend Regan, her and I are, you know, great friends still, even though she's in Texas. Yeah, absolutely. And, and they kind of make very lasting friendships, I find. And if you were asked to do that now, it wouldn't see the challenges would remain the same, but you wouldn't be so intimidated. And that's one of the nice things about field research is that even though you face new scenarios or you get thrown into new experiments or new environments because you've gone kind of this, this baptism by fire sort of thing, you're like, well, I don't know what's ahead of me, but based on my previous experiences, I'll just figure it out. It'll be fine. It does kind of make you sort of... Um, I suppose, inoculated against fear. I definitely felt that it it taught me to be adaptable. And after a few years of field research, I was a lot less intimidated and less scared, both to learn new things and then to try new challenges that I'd perhaps never heard of before. Right. And each time you can you could f feel more prepared because you know what to expect a little bit. You can prepare some things that maybe you hadn't thought about the last time, right? I never forgot my rubber boots ever again. Yeah, I bet But you also didn't. it was, well, okay, I have my boots this time. It can't be worse than the time I walked <laughs> through the field in Converse and had like 10 pounds of mud on them by the time I was done. Yeah, absolutely. You'll, you'll, uh, you will never make that mistake again, nor will you let anyone make that mistake. <laughs> right. Okay, everybody have their boots, a boot check yeah. before, we, before we get on the road. Yeah, absolutely. But the other nice thing about field research is you never do stop learning and pretty much everyone you work with is going to have something to teach you. Like that's 
very encouraging. It's very reassuring in that you're continually adding to your skills. And not only are you does each field day of field research bring you a step closer to your immediate goal, but it also is genuinely character and skill developing, um, which you just get cumulatively more and more competent and capable of person as you go on. And I think that's really important, actually, thing to bring up that when we're in research, whether it's undergraduate or graduate or, you know, that's just your career, we can get a little bit myopic and think everything's research. We're training people for research. It's like, well, no, maybe you're not. Maybe your student doesn't want to go into research. Maybe they want to go into industry or maybe they want to go into, you know, the commercial side of things. So what's the benefit of them doing field research? Well, to me, if I see someone has done a field research project, what I now know about them is that they are a problem solver, that they are capable of working in a team, that they are adaptable, and that they're probably pretty reliable. Now, that strikes me as four skills that would be very, very useful to industry. So what I would say is if you're an undergraduate or a graduate student, you're like, well, what's the value of field research to me? I would say that would make you look pretty attractive to a prospective employer in future. That's true. It's very good character building, I think. For sure. We've talked a lot about sort of how to prepare the things that you're going to need materially, your time, having your team. How do you sort of emotionally or mentally prepare for field research? I suppose a lot of kind of checklisting, I suppose, to, to remove any concerns I have, you know, going through your checklist and making sure you are prepared on the technical side will relieve a lot of the potential stress on the psychological side. And then I suppose you just have to be prepared to be away from your home or be away from your office. For many of us, that's quite exciting. You know, it's nice to get out of the lab and the office and to experience something a little bit different. So I find that a lot of people really look forward to it, or at least they look forward to the start of the field campaign. I suppose where, the, where things get more difficult is as the sampling campaign goes on, because you become mentally kind of tired, you become physically tired, you're sick of being on the road, you'd like to have a coffee in like at home or in the office, not in a paper cup out of a filling station, you know, things like that can wear on someone over time. So what I would say is probably prepare yourself mentally for that. Know that uh, maybe I'm going to be a bit tired of this or maybe as much as I love my teammates, I won't want to see them anymore and I'm stuck with them. Like, you know, you have a day in the lab and then you go home to your family or your friends and you have a completely different life outside. When you're on field research, you're probably going to spend the evening with the people you spent the day with and you spent the day before with them and you're actually tired of them. So what I would say is prepare yourself for being a little, you know, for, for it wearing on you and that it's absolutely perfectly reasonable to say to your colleagues, I'm actually going to take this night and I'm, I'm not going to go for dinner with the rest of the team or I'm going to take an hour or two aside and just, you know, expect yourself to get tired and it's not a bad thing. You just need to deal with that the same as you deal with any other challenge in the field by taking steps to alleviate that pressure. And generally, I would say try and focus on the progress you're making. And as I said, remember, each day is a step forward. So even if it was a bad day, you're never going to have to repeat that bad day. You never have to make those mistakes again or you never have to take those samples again. That's in the past. And you know, it's it's 
take each day as it comes and, you know, enjoy it too. Don't forget to look around you and see that you might be seeing beautiful environments or new things that you haven't seen before. Uh, I remember I, I did my postdoc in uh, Kansas State University, which was, it's a fantastic university and it's such cool research. But I remember I was installing some uh, monitoring arrays on the prairie and it was going on for days and it went really well, but I was just really tired. And then coming back and teaching classes in the evenings. But I remember on the last day of installation, looking around, you've got this beautiful sunset over the prairie and you see the bison herd. And I thought, wow, if I wasn't on fieldwork, I'd never have seen that. And that was a huge reward in and of itself. So don't forget, take a moment, look around you and just appreciate it. Uh, maybe my lab colleagues won't like this, but I think it's an awful lot more exciting than the lab. So finding the things that kind of can re-motivate you and remembering the things that are driving the reason you're out there in the first place to kind of keep you going when you're maybe hitting sort of that mental wall. Yeah. A hundred percent that I couldn't agree more. So is there a specific moment when you were out in the field? I guess you just kind of touched on one, but was there a time where field work just kind of clicked where you're like this, I've prepared well for this. I'm getting great data. I'm so excited to be out here and that you're just, you know, everything felt like it was on the right track and that you knew you wanted to continue doing it. Yeah. I mean, I've been very lucky that I've had lots of I've probably had more good, happy days in the field than bad. Um, certainly, I loved my master's research. It was such a neat, it was like a textbook plot study. So you really felt that every sampling day did yield such good data. Uh, so that was very rewarding. I suppose I was lucky to have that experience so early on. But I think the fieldwork moment that I was probably proudest of isn't my moment, it's my PhD student's moment. Uh, he is looking at phosphorus leaching and uptake from different uh, organic manures on different grassland sites. And what we wanted to do was we had an existing plot trial and we wanted to install soil moisture uh, or so soil water samplers at 30 centimetres below these plots. So we had to be fairly non-invasive. It was kind of a surgical procedure to insert these samplers without damaging the plot trials that were ongoing. So we had four sites to do and each site needed, I think it was, if I get this right, I think it was 16 or 20 samplers. And the first site we did, it was really challenging conditions. It was the first time that this particular team had worked together. I'd worked with these probes before, but nobody else had. Um, we wanted to be super careful not to damage the plots. Anyway, the installation wound up taking us two and a half days. We had to make three trips back to the site. It was really, really challenging. And we had a team of four. And by the time we'd come to our last site, that was the first site, by the time we had the fourth site, it was just me and my student, Romain, and we did the whole thing in under four hours. It was so efficient. It was just absolutely couldn't have gone better. And it was so good that we got back to the van and we looked at each other and said, did we calculate the time right? How did we do that so quickly? So we were so smug. We were so proud. We were gloating about it for weeks. Uh, it was a real win. And all that came down to was practice and experience, uh, knowing what we were about and just having a team that had been through rep repetition and repetition become really efficient at working together. And I thought, wow, that's really playing out all of the principles of good fieldwork. I wish I could take credit for it, but it should really go to him. He did a brilliant, brilliant <laughs> job. So that was, um, that's, if you, that's 
the day of field work that I am most pleased with. Uh, his success was just fantastic. And have you gotten the data from that study yet? Yes, he's got. we've got great data. He's writing up his thesis for submission later this year. So hopefully we'll have papers and all of the rest of it coming out. But definitely his thesis is well on its way. Uh, so that was really exciting. You know, that was what was really, I suppose, intimidating about that particular piece of fieldwork wasn't the equipment itself that we were installing, but rather that we were trying to adapt ongoing field tri- field plot trials without damaging those plots. And that's always the big hazard when you come to plot trials. You don't want to do anything that will upset the experiment that's already ongoing. Um, so that was a pretty neat piece of work. And so when you install a site like that, how often are you going out to check on things after you've installed them to make sure that everything's okay, animals haven't come, yeah. eaten something they shouldn't have? Yeah, and they do. They do. Um, That's definitely a question that's kind of a how long is a piece of string question. There's no one rule for it. And I'd say a lot of the advances in technology, particularly in sensor technology, and you guys know all about that, is really takes a lot of the burden off the field researcher to be there and to have their hands and eyes on it the whole time. And it also really expands the area that we can monitor or that we can investigate because you no longer need to be restricted to the preserved site that's nearby your laboratory or, you know, the research farm where you really control everything about it except the weather. Um no, you can go to much more far-flung far places and either have remote data logging or telemetry that's feeding back to you the whole time. Telemetry offers huge uh, reductions in the labor in terms of how often you have to visit the site because if there's something wrong with the site, those sensors and those communications are going to let you know. However, even with telemetry, I don't think it's a good idea not to revisit the site. So I would generally recommend that someone revisits the site after installation, probably pretty quickly, within a week or two, if you can, maybe within a couple of days, if the site is only a few hours away, I would be very much a a, a proponent of boots on the ground. And I would say you should probably be downloading and QCing your data ongoingly. Everyone falls behind on this. QCing is hugely time consuming. It's usually pretty boring, but ultimately, what's the point in taking samples or of monitoring if it's not of good quality? So that's absolutely essential. So I can't tell you how often you have to go and do it, but you are going to have to go back and visit the site. And, you know, the animal one is a really big issue because uh, they love interfering with things. I've had rats gnaw through cables. I've had cattle pull poor water samplers out of the ground. I had a colleague of mine actually had a plot trial when she was doing mixed species swords and pigeons came down and ate all the clover. So it wasn't a mixed species sword anymore. You can't control for wildlife entirely. So, you know, I would say no matter what environment you work in, give some thought to animal proofing, whether that's fencing, whether it's wiring around your equipment, uh, whether it's netting over your plots, give some thought to that because you would be amazed at the damage uh, animals can do in a very, very short space of time. If you're not sure what to expect or account for at a site like that, do you, what's your go-to protocol? Do you normally ask a researcher who's worked at a similar site before and see kind of what's happened at to them or... Yeah. You know, how do you how do you research a new a field site that's new to you 
to be better prepared for those unexpected things? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. So I suppose if if there is a researcher who's familiar with that site or that environment, they're probably the first and best person you can go to talk to. If there isn't, I'd say spend some time scoping out the site to begin with, both on paper, look into what is the ecology of this place? What is the, you know, climate like? What are the weather patterns? If I'm researching a river, what's the nearest gauging station? Because how high and how low does this river actually flow? That's crucial data. That'll really guide you. Um, And then talk to locals. This is something I have seen overlooked time and time again. They may not be scientists. They might be even better because they live there and they can tell you an awful lot about the site. So, for example, if you're working in an agricultural area, most farmers will be willing to talk to you and they'll be able to tell you, oh, this particular area of the catchment field, it floods every year or, you know, this is the livestock or these are the wildlife that we have in the area. So really talking to people can uh, provide a great insight. For example, I have a good example of this. A few years ago, I was helping uh, validate a soil survey map in the west of Ireland and there was a particular soil series and we're like, I don't think, like looking at the landscape, it just didn't match up. I thought that it changed from one series to another at a particular point along the hill slope. And I said, we'll knock into this farmer and have a chat with him. So we were talking to the farmer. He was very helpful. And I said, by any chance, are there any springs here? And he pointed along the ridge and he goes, there's a spring there. And he goes, that comes, that that spring starts running every autumn or every, every fall for my American friends. And uh, I said, well, that's clearly the point where the soil series changes and that the, the water is bursting out because there's been this, the change in soil texture and the and change in geology. The initial person who had done the survey had done a really good job, but if they'd talked to the farmer, they would have done a better job. They would have been more precise in delineating where that change in series was. Uh, So, you know, you can get great information from people in the locality, particularly if they're involved in the environment. So farmers, you know, people who are involved in fishing or hunting or game or wildlife, people who are like local ecology fans, all of these people have so much information that can really help you get your boots on the ground uh, more quickly than you would have and kind of save you a lot of the hard legwork of figuring out an area. Right. Losing something to a flood the first year because you didn't know that that area always floods. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Well, we have a little more time and I just have a question now kind of for myself because my work has been on a lot of high throughput phenotyping and phenomics. And so, you know, with field research, as things kind of move from manual things like measuring the heights of things to, you know, maybe somebody just goes on and flies a drone and now you don't need a team out there with measuring sticks. How do you see that affecting your job and do you see yourself when possible, taking on those types of high throughput methods instead of the manual ones? Yeah, I definitely think that there is a a place and a need for high throughput methods, particularly as the, I suppose, the nexus of research and then agricultural practitioners um, sort of becomes more combined or more, more integrated. You know, you see more and more people are running or are willing to run field trials on their own commercial and productive agricultural land. Um, and there's definitely a space there for 
more, as you say, drones, apps, uh, more, I suppose, automated technologies. But at the end of the day, those technologies still need validation. They still need testing. And even though the tools we use will change, that's inevitable and that's happened before and it will continue to happen. I don't think anything will ever replace having a man or woman uh, in the field actually able to take or apply a measurement. Um, I don't think that's going to be fully removed. So I suppose it's just a matter of keeping up to date with the technology, developing technologies that suit us and that are practical and uh, I suppose roll with the times. But no, I, I don't believe that field research is ever going to disappear completely. Right. Just the way we do it is going to look differently as we move forward. Totally. Like if you look at the River Thames in England, that has been monitored for over 150 years continuously. It's one of the longest uh, hydrological data sets that we have of, of unbroken monitoring. 150 years, it's outstanding. But the, the machinery that we're using to monitor it today in 2021 is nothing like it was back in 1900. They probably wouldn't even recognise uh, what we have today. It's, it's just inherently different. The, the, the mechanism of its working is different. But we're still hydrologists in the field using that equipment. Um, the, the need for a hydrologist hasn't disappeared. And I think you could probably apply that across any niche within the field sciences. Right. Just the tools you have available to you have evolved. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Well, I know we're at our time. Is there anything else that we didn't get to touch on about your book or about field research that you kind of were hoping we were going to get to? Um, no, I think I, I've really, really enjoyed the conversation. What I would just say to people is uh, my biggest takeaway is don't be intimidated don't be discouraged. The book is here to teach you all the things that people don't talk about. Plenty of people will teach you, as I said before, the specific techniques. What I want to do is teach you how to be prepared to apply those techniques and talk about field research more. You can learn from your colleagues and it's fun to talk about. I don't know anyone who isn't at least a little bit enthusiastic about their field research. And go out there and do a great job. Everyone's very capable of doing it. Uh, don't be afraid. Okay, our time is up for today. If you have any questions about this topic or want to hear more, feel free to contact us at metergroup.com or reach out to us on Twitter at meter underscore ENV. Sarah and I would love to hear your thoughts on this topic as well. Reach out on Twitter to me at HLPlants or to Dr. Vero at Sarah Eve Vero 89 You can view the full transcript from today in the podcast description. That's all for now. Stay safe, and we'll catch you next time on We Measure the World. 